Today's scripture reading is from 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, verse 16b to verse 40. This can be found on page 254 of your pew Bibles. First Kings chapter 18, verse 16b. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let them choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, What you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bowls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no answer. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, in Israel, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. 
When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. May God bless the reading of his word. So, one of the most controversial things in our culture, one of the most controversial teachings of Christianity, one of the most controversial things about us as Christians, is our insistence that Christ is the only way to salvation. This is viewed as offensive, exclusivistic. Uh, It's really basically rejected in our world today. But it's nothing new. It runs throughout the Bible. It it runs, it, it appears it's central to this passage, and it starts even before this passage. You remember what we looked at a couple of weeks ago with Solomon and God's blessing on Solomon's reign and Solomon fulfilling the promises of God to Israel. In 1 Kings chapter 10, when Solomon became so prominent for his wealth, known for his wealth, known for his uh, wisdom around the surrounding area, and that the Queen of Sheba came from a long distance away to come and hear of his wisdom and see his wealth, to see God's blessing on his life. And yet, you know, well, just when it looked like God's promises were going to be fulfilled in Solomon, what happened next? He had accumulated all these wives or this harem and this con- all these concubines from making treaties with other nations so that they have, uh, n- there won't be any war. He makes treaties with these other nations by intermarrying, by swapping, excuse me, swapping women with the rulers of other nations. And then, to, to, because of his relationship with these women, he starts to worship other gods. And, and what does God say in response to him? You know, God threatens, God warns that he's going to take the kingdom away from Solomon because Solomon didn't worship Jehovah alone, but Solomon worshipped other gods as well. And we see the same kind of situation developing in this passage. The same kind of situation, yeah, even stronger now because there's a change coming over. Now, as background, basically you could say that up to this point, there's two basic kinds of religion we have in America today. Basically, we have the whole notion of a do-it-yourself religion, where you can make your own. You know the notion of being uh, spiritual without being religious? Uh, What that typically means is people are saying, well, I've got an interest in in God things, in the divine, in the afterlife. I've got an interest in spiritual values, but I don't want any particular organized religion. You see, spirituality is a, a, a vague impression. I don't want any organized religion telling me what I have to believe what I can choose. And so you've got spiritual, but not religious. Uh, I care about God, whether there is a God, but, but I don't go to church or temple or mosque. You know, I create, I, I relate to God on my own. And this is what we saw earlier, really, with Jeroboam. You remember the story of Jeroboam, maybe, or I'll just briefly introduce it, because we've seen it previously. Jeroboam was in uh, 1 Kings chapter 12. Jeroboam, had a problem. Israel had split into two countries. 
The northern part now is called Israel, and the southern part was Judah. But the temple, the, the Jewish temple was in, in Jerusalem. And the north, Jeroboam, ruler of the north, was worried about people going down to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. Because then they would reunite, reunify with the south. So Jeroboam created his own kind of religion. What he took was Judaism, and then he modified it a little bit. And so we see in, in first, uh, first Kings chapter 12, what he does is takes the traditional Judaism and he modifies it. He, instead of worshiping in the temple, he gives them two sites, Dan and Bethel, where they can worship. Instead of worshiping without images, he creates a golden calf that they can worship. Instead of celebrating Passover, he has a special feast festival on the 15th day of the 8th month so they can worship together. So basically, he just tweaked Judaism. They had Orthodox Judaism in Jerusalem, and he just kind of tweaked his own, adapted it. Kind of like a, a do-it-yourself religion he, he devised. And then he invited the people to worship. And then God's word came to him warning him of the consequences. Alter, alter, this is what the Lord says. A, man, a son named Josiah will be born to the house of David, and he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. The prophet comes to Jeroboam and says, God is going to destroy this do-it-yourself religion of Jeroboam's. Now, today's passage is actually gets a bit worse. Because Ahab does something even worse than what Jeroboam did. Jeroboam kind of shaped Judaism for his own purposes. He kind of made his, made his own. But now Ahab does something else. Ahab married a, one of the most famous women in the Bible, for the wrong reasons. Ahab married Jezebel. And basically this is another international treaty, international marriage. And he married... Uh, Jeroboam was... Um, Jezebel was from the area, now considered Lebanon, we call it. And he married her and brought her in, and she brought her gods with her. And so she was a worshiper of Baal, and he's a worshiper of Jehovah. And so what he does now is he fuses the two together. So that basically this is the same mentality we have today with the notion that, well, you know how you've heard it, right? All religions are different paths up the same mountain. It all comes to the same basic idea. So it doesn't really matter whether it's this religion or that religion, whether you're Jewish or whether you're Buddhist or whether you're Muslim or whether you're Christian. And as long as you're sincere, it doesn't really matter. They're all different paths up the same mountain. And so Ahab and Jezebel, worshiping Jehovah and Baal, Ahab says it doesn't really matter. We bring them together, we fuse them into a new religion, adaptation and amalgamation, and we worship together. And then the, Elijah challenges this, and God challenges it through Elijah. Now, to understand what's going on here, you have to know a little bit about Baal. You know, we're, we're, this uh, situation, the scripture reading describes this Contest between the prophets of Baal and Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh. But you've got to know why it took this form. Why did Elijah say, okay, let's all get together on a mountain. And then on this mountain, we're going to sacrifice an animal. 
And then we're going to ask the gods to burn that animal up. Because sacrifices were burned in the ancient times, right? You'd sacrifice the animal and you'd burn all or most of it. So why are they doing this? Why Elijah chose this particular form of contest? It goes back to who Baal was. Baal was the god of rain. And because rain makes your crops fertile, the land fertile, Baal was the god of rain. He was the god of fertility. He was the god of life. Now, within ancient Canaanite religion. Now, if you have a god of fertility and a god of rain and a god of life, you also have a problem, right? Because not every season is... You know, sometimes you have drought. And how do you account for the drought? Well, there was another god that fought with Baal in Canaanite religion, a god named Mort. And Baal would bring rain, and Mort would burn drought, bring drought, and Baal would bring life, and Mort would bring death. And so they were in this contest. And as long as the crops were growing well and there was rain, abundant rain, and people were prospering, then Baal was ascendant. But you couldn't count on it forever because sometimes Mort would gain the upper hand over Baal and defeat him temporarily until Baal could regather his strength and fight back. So you've got, even within Canaanite religion and in any polytheistic religion, basically you have different gods that are competing with each other. And this is what was going on in Canaanite religion. So Elijah, notice how Elijah says to the people of God, says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But what Elijah is saying is, it does matter. The gods are different. And it does matter which one you worship. One is true and powerful. The other one is not a true God. And how are they going to decide? So Elijah goes before the people and says, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. So Elijah sets up a sudden death playoff, if you will, but on a really more sinister, serious level. He sets up a challenge. He says, look, I'm the only prophet publicly defending Jehovah now. You've got 450 prophets and priests defending Baal. He says, get your 450 priests and I, and we'll go up to Mount Carmel. Why Mount Carmel? Or why a mountain? The notion is, you see, this is where the Canaanites, this is where the northern part of Israel, this is where they would worship, not in the temple at Jerusalem, but they could worship in the city of Dan, the city of Bethel, or they would build shrines all around the countryside in any high mountain, any high hill, beside any towering tree. Any animistic religion, these are key places where there's spiritual power. The high mountains, the high hills, the big trees. And so Elijah takes the battle to the worshipers of Baal on their territory. He's in the north. They go up the mount. And then he issues this challenge. And in the first part of the challenge, 
Chapter 17, verse... Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm okay. Thank you. I'm confusing the projectionist. Chapter 17, verse 1. What happens? You see, we read, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. So Elijah, first thing he does is he creates a drought. Or he proclaims, on God created the drought. And Elijah says, look, to show that my God is God, there is going to be a drought here. What's the message he's proclaiming? There's going to be a drought. It's Yahweh who's bringing this drought. Jehovah who's bringing this drought. You know, he, what he's saying is, it's Jehovah. It's not Mart that conquers Baal. It's Jehovah, not Mart, who has the power of drought. And then in chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, after a long time, in the third year of the drought, the word of God came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. What's the assertion here? What's the gospel here? See, what he's saying here is, it's Yahweh. It's not Baal who brings rain. It's Yahweh, not Mot, who controls Baal and brings drought. It's Yahweh, not Baal, who can bring rain. And so to demonstrate this, to make the case, he takes the people up Mount Carmel. And here there's a contest. Who is God? How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And so they set up this sacrifice. And what, um, if Baal is the, is the God of rain, He's the God of storms. He's the God of lightning. So Elijah says, okay, prove it. Lay out this sacrifice on the altar. Then call on your God to come and burn this sacrifice up. Call on your God to strike this sacrifice with lightning so that it burns up. And the prophets call on their God. For hours they call on their God. From morning until lunch. And finally about lunchtime, Elijah kind of loses patience, and starts mocking them. Shout louder. Maybe he's sleeping, because gods do get distracted in, in polytheism. Get his attention. And they begin to cut themselves as a sign of commitment and sacrifice to try and get their gods to respond. And yet still no response. Hello. Excuse me. And so the prophets of Baal could not get their God to answer them. So then Elijah goes and he says to the people, let's make this a little harder. We've got a sacrifice on the altar. Now pour some water on that sacrifice to make it harder to burn. And they poured water on it. And they dug a trench around it. And then he says, well, it's not wet enough yet. Pour some more water on it. And they poured some more water on it. And the trench began to fill. He says, not wet enough, not challenging enough. Pour some more water on it. So they poured some more water on it. And the trench filled and overflowed. And then Elijah called on God to send down fire from heaven, to send down lightning. 
and burn up that sacrifice. And the lightning flashed, and the sacrifice was hit, and the sacrifice burned, and the water all evaporated because of the lightning. And then all the people said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. What you have here is what's often called the power encounter. That God's, God, uh, in a situation where God's power was under challenge, God challenged the foreign deities. And he set fire, he demonstrated his power, he demonstrated his power over Baal through setting the fire to the sacrifice. What does any of this have to say to us today? Already last time we saw the problem with Jeroboam, we saw the problem with do-it-yourself religion. This is something else. This is a, the whole issue of fusion religion. Are all God's different paths up the same mountain? It doesn't matter who you worship. Is it all just a matter of personal taste, like what color you prefer to paint your walls? Or is there truth in any of this? It doesn't matter. Is one true and the other one not? Now, you begin to talk like this and people get offended. Because we're in a, a small community as a country, you know, mass media and all that. We, we have friends who are not Christians. We have Jewish friends. We have Muslim friends. We have Buddhist friends. We have Hindu friends. And it gets really risky to say, there is one true God. We must all worship him. It gets offensive. It gets risky. There's, there's violence that breaks out. Now, we can dispute how we should handle this. We can argue about, or, or we can qualify how we should enter these debates and how aggressively we should be coming in the midst of them. You know, and worshipers of Jesus, who said, love your enemies, have no grounds for using violence against their enemies. This is not an argument. It does not need to be an argument, and it doesn't need to end in violence. The question is still legitimate to ask. Is there a God? If so, which is the true God? Now, in our culture, basically, we say it's all different ways up the same mountain. Now, Stephen Prothero, Prothero is a professor at BU, and he wrote a book. He's not a Christian. He used to be a Christian, not a Christian now. He's an agnostic now. He wrote a book entitled God is Not One. God is not one, intentionally taking on the slogan that there is one God and the notion that all gods are the same. And so here's what he had to say. The notion that all gods are one, he dates back to the 1960s, it became popular, but he dates it back at least as early as 1795. He said, it's as odd as it is intriguing. No one argues that capitalism and socialism are the same. And no one argues that democracy and monarchy are the same. But people will argue that Hinduism and Islam and Judaism and Christianity are by some miracle of the imagination essentially the same. He points out the peculiarity of it all. Now, he gives a couple of examples. Consider the notion of God. Are they all the same when it comes to God? 
Many Buddhists believe in no God. Many Hindus believe in thousands of gods. Moreover, the character of these gods differ widely. Is God a warrior like Hinduism's Kali? Or is he a mild-mannered wanderer like Christianity's Jesus? Is God personal or impersonal? Male or female? Or is he beyond description altogether? The religions diverge. They converge a little bit on ethics sometimes, but he says they diverge sharply on doctrine, ritual, mythology, experience, and law. Basically, the religions, the world religions, he studies eight of them here as a professor of world religions. Basically, the eight religions, eight world religions, differ on virtually everything. There's only one thing they agree on, he identifies. Something's wrong with our world. That's what they agree on. Other than that, they part company. What has gone wrong? They disagree. What's the solution to what's gone wrong? They disagree. Christians see sin as the problem and salvation from sin as the religious goal. Buddhists see suffering as the problem and liberation from problem as the goal. If the practitioners of the world religions are all mountain climbers, then they're on entirely different mountains, climbing very different peaks, using very different paths. Even within individual religions, he says, the differences are vast. There's any number of forms of Buddhism, any number of forms of Christianity, four, at least four different forms of Judaism. Hindus worship a dizzying variety of gods in a dizzying variety of ways. Even each, within each religion, there's a lot of differences. And as we know today from the news, right, Shia and Sunni Muslims diverge widely. How can they all be different paths up the same mountain when they're at war? So what he does in the course of this book is to analyze all world religions according to four basic a rubric of four different pieces. A problem, a solution, a technique, and an example. A human who embodies that faith. And he says that each of these four problems, each of these four major areas, all the religions differ. What's the problem? What's the solution? How do we, what's the technique for moving from problem to solution? And then who exemplifies that solution? For in Christianity, the problem is sin. The solution is salvation. The technique for salvation is some combination of faith and good works. And it's Jesus who is the role model. In Buddhism, the problem is suffering. The, the solution is nirvana. The technique is the noble eightfold path. And the exemplar is the bodhisattvas. It differs. At every point, all the religions differ. He drives home the point with this last little bit of irony. It's common enough for Christians who are anxious about being too absolutistic to talk about, well, all religions save. And Prothero says, no, they can't. By definition, it can't be true. Salvation is not something that most religions even seek. Salvation is, something, salvation is a Christian goal. And when Christians speak of it, they're speaking of being saved from sin. But Confucians and Buddhists don't believe in sin, so it makes no sense for them to try to be saved from sin. 
while Muslims and Jews do speak of sin in a way, neither Islam nor Judaism describes salvation from sin as its aim. So despite what our culture tells us, we really face the same issue that Israel did in the days of Ahab and Elijah. There are different gods, all claiming to be true. And the question for us is still the same as it was for them. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now Jesus himself doesn't let us get away with the notion that all religions are different ways up the same mountain. Because remember what Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All religions are not different paths up the same mountain. They're different paths up different mountains. And according to Jesus, salvation is the pinnacle of one path up one mountain. And he's the path. In reconciliation with God, Jehovah God of the Old Testament, is the way to that, is the mountain to be climbed through Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, maybe one of the reasons that it's convenient, comfortable to believe that all religions are the path up the same mountain, maybe one of the reasons that's instructive or, or conducive to us to believe this thing is it means that we can be really kind of non-controversial, non-confrontational, and we can keep from adjusting our lives too much. If other people, if Muslims can be saved through the worship of Allah and following the teachings of Muhammad, if Buddhists can be saved through the Bhagavad Gita, if Hindus can be saved through their traditions, then not only are we more peaceable and our cultures are more quiet or harmonious, but it means that we don't really have to adjust our lives very much. Because the minute Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, then what's our immediate response? Our immediate response is, how can this be fair? Because some people hear about Jesus and have opportunity for salvation. And other people have never heard about Jesus. And so when we talk like this, People immediately turn to God, to the Bible, or to the preacher. How can this be fair? I think that's a risky question. Because it's probably not us asking God that question. It's probably God asking us this question. Because 2,000 years ago, after Jesus died for sin and for salvation from sin, once he identified the problem and provided the solution, what did he tell his disciples? What did he tell the church? Not every individual, but collectively. What did he say? Was go into all the world. Make disciples. Baptizing in the name of not Allah, not Buddha, 
not Kali, but baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If salvation is through Christ alone, then everybody needs to hear about Jesus. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, go and tell people about Jesus. They need to hear. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Great news. Anyone, whatever their background in religion, whatever their moral background, however damaged their lives are, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Good news. Great news. But then he continues. If salvation comes through calling on the name of the Lord, what's the entailment? What's the ramification? How then can they call on the one they haven't believed in? How can they believe in the one that they haven't heard about? How can they hear about him without someone coming to preach to them? How can they preach unless they're sent? If Jesus is the only way, then we send so others can go, so they can speak, so others can hear, so then they can call and be saved. And I think this may be the biggest challenge to the notion that Christ is the only way to salvation is because it really disrupts our lives. It requires our prayers, it requires our money, it requires some of us to go. Now this morning we prayed for Eric and Linda Yang. Publicly, we tell you they're from Thailand, that work in Thailand. They actually don't work in Thailand, but we can't tell you where they do work because that would put their lives in jeopardy. We say they work in Thailand. They work with a tribal group. We can't tell you which tribal group because that could put their lives in jeopardy. We prayed for Eric that he could get over the effects of his stroke so that he could continue his work. Well, Eric is older than he should be to be where he is. He really should be back here where he can get medical care. But so far, he hasn't been able to identify anyone to take his place. So Eric and Linda stay working where they are. And they face robbers. They face war from, with the government. They face uh, tribal unrest. Uh, they face uh, malaria. They face uh, poisonous snakes. They face difficult working environment and the possibility of uh, serious ill health issues. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But in order to call, they have to believe. In order to believe, they have to hear. In order to hear, somebody has to preach. In order to preach, they have to be sent. You know, this is really why our church spends about $250,000, $300,000 a year on missions. So that people can go and speak and others hear and put their faith in Christ. It's somewhat inconvenient, not massively to us. It's majorly inconvenient to the people who go. But this is the calling. Because there is one God, creator of the universe, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom salvation comes. Elijah said, 
It makes all the difference in the world who you worship, Baal or Jehovah. As a result, it makes a huge difference, not only who we worship, but what we teach and what we believe. So Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to demonstrate that this is the true God. This is the challenge for us still today, to send out people and to go and be people who will proclaim the gospel of salvation in the single name of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, in a world which treats all religions as relatively the same, help us to be gracious representatives of a different view. And in a world which offers many gods, help us, Father, to speak for you in a way which offers salvation. May your name be honored in our lives and through our speaking. In Jesus' name, amen.